Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. And we're live. And I am excited. I can't even talk I'm excited because today's guest is, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion, a legend in the marketing space, especially the marketing automation space. Uh, sales, early, early sales rep for Pardot, one of the, one of the initial crew uh, who's then gone on to become an author who actually wrote the book, Marketing Automation for Dummies. If you have this book, and I know many of you do, then you already know who I'm talking about. For everyone else, he's, he's now also writing Forbes, Harvard Business Review, everywhere he wants his work. He can only write so many things, people. Uh, he's also got into podcasting, a recent Hermes Creative Award, double platinum, Hello for his podcast, which we'll talk about. Now the principal of marketing insights at Salesforce, Matthew Sweezy. How are you, sir? Hey, it's great to be here. Well, I, I literally almost lost myself in your introduction. There's just so much to say. <laughs> well, they can't see me blushing, but yeah, it's happening. Thanks. Yeah, thanks oh, I can see it. Yeah. And you just go on YouTube. You can all see you blush. No. Now, what were you like? Sales rep one or two? On Power Number, two. Number two. It was me and Kevin. Um, so I was in 2013 at Pardot, wow. um, and it was just such a, yeah, so it was fun. It's been a fun ride. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're here because we just really want to pick your brain or just kind of plug a vacuum into it and just kind of get all that information out. Uh, it, the topic today, the theme that we're going to talk about a lot of things, we're going to smash myths, we're going to talk about a lot of different topics, uh, everything from like what actually matters in marketing, because I think we get distracted by things that don't actually make sense and we've heard it, like the the tales that we've heard that don't actually make any sense to the marketing results. And then also eventually getting into things like multi-touch reporting and what's the reality on all these kind of things. So to start out with, let me pick this thing up and pass it to you. This it's heavy, but oh, that's Thor's hammer. Take that and smash for me some kind of bogus marketing strategy, some uh, bogus myths you're hearing out there. You just set the record straight. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, if we're going to start smashing, let's start smashing big stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I want to start off with the, the myth, the, the mythos of the biggest marketing apex myth of all, which is all you need to do is hit the right person with the right message at the right time. And that works. And it's, it's a myth. Um, it's wrong. It's a it's, myth. This is like, this is like a golden rule of marketing. Everyone says this and it's not, it's, we're misguided. It's not true. So, I mean, so let's, let's break this out, right? There, there are elements of truth and there are also massive myths that, that this creates, right? So let's, let's go from a really high level. It's an apex of an idea. It's an apex of an idea that all you need to drive consumer motivation is the most perfect thing, right? It, it, it follows what I call silver bullet mentality, which is the idea that there is one perfect creative that can exist that will convert anybody to do exactly what the brand wants them to do. And this is theoretically flawed in lots of different ways. And I've got a lot of data to prove out how this is flawed, right? So let's start from the, the first. Yeah. The idea is flawed in the notion that you can do one thing to make somebody convert. We can't. Um, we could at a very specific point in time, right? So if we go back to where does this myth come from, we can start to understand why it was created, right? It comes from a time where we did not have the ability to put one thing in front of one person at one time, 
right? And, and that was where this idea comes from. This idea also then comes from the same of the golden era of marketing, which was all about ads, which is all about branding, right? Which we iconoclized, that kind of maybe the word, which we uh, edified in, I made up another word, in madness. <laughs> Preach. Right? You sound man, I'm a word maker upper. That's um, so, yeah, that's, that's what marketing is. And so, um, yeah, so, so it, we didn't have that ability. So we thought if we could do that, right, if we can combine these things, if we can take the perfect creative and only serve it up to the perfect person at the perfect moment, then that is what perfect marketing it, it is. But it's false, right? And it's false in modern reality. And this one data point is the data point I always like to look at, right? So WordStream, I'm a big fan of Larry Kim's. I yeah. love what he does. Um, so a couple years ago, they ran this study and they continue to run this study, which looks at the total amount of ad spend across the platform and then the average conversion rate of those ads, right? So we're specifically talking about AdWords and AdWords conversion rates. Now, why are we talking about that? Well, because it is the apex of this idea to the extreme, right? Google, we all know who Google is. We know that those ads are programmatic. They're being based off of the largest data set that we don't even have access to, right? I think right. They, Google has 57 data points in every individual. Jeez. We're then considering that this is real time, right? So it's then resorting and reshifting. These are also then targeted based on intent, right? Because the person is asking a question and these are ads popping up when that person is asking a question, right? So there is no better apex, right? It's the person is asking a question that's relevant to them based on time. It's relevant to them based on the scenario and the context of the scenario. But what we find is that the average number is 2.35%. That's the average conversion rate of a Google AdWords ad. Now, I want to take this one step further. I want to say, let's look at Google AdWords and, it's, and how it's progressed. Do you remember three years ago when there used to be AdWords on the right-hand side of the search results page? Yeah. There are no longer. All of those ads are only on the top and they're top four, right? So, yeah, so a lot of us may have missed that shift unless you were really like dialed in, unless you were an SEM or SEO expert and really kind of looked at these things. And if you dive into why they made the shift, they give two key reasons of why they stopped having ads on the right-hand side. Number one was those ads were horribly low conversion rates in comparison with the ads on the top. I think that the statistic was like, for every one click you get on one, I think you get like, it would take seven to get one click on the other, right? Mm -hmm. So there was just very, very low conversions. And then the second was that they wanted to ensure that it was the same experience on mobile as it was on desktop. On mobile, you don't have the right side. They would move those to the top. So they wanted to make sure it was a better experience, right? So experience and engagement rates are the two reasons why they did it. So then we, we, we boil all that down and we say, well, wait a second. We can put the right message in front of the right person at the right time. Right? But the reality is it fails to drive any conversion 98% of the time. Really? So yeah, if it only converts 2.35%, that's what 97 point, you know, seven. So it isn't the successful channel or the, it it has the one that converts the most, but really that's, you don't get an A for that. I mean, it's the tiny percentage. Right. Now, you know, that tiny percentage can be a big thing for many people. Yeah. Right. You know, so if you were scaling this idea and saying, well, that 2% of a, of a million person marketplace on a daily is, is a lot. And, and I'm not going to disagree with that. But to the theory that we need to, to be realistic on this idea as a theory and in the, in the application of it in reality. And the theory is that that's all we require. And here's where this really breaks down. 
It's not that this is a bad idea that you shouldn't be doing AdWords because we just talked about it works for 2% of people. The reality is those 2% of people are probably in the right point in time where they're going to buy something anyways. You're probably just meeting them in that moment. The rest of the people, you are unable to motivate via that ad, which then goes back to the other flaw of this, that we only have to have one thing. The modern consumer makes a decision based on a lot of factors, asking a lot of questions. Right? The old consumer, back in the day, we used to think about B2B and B2C. So let's match myth number two along with myth number one, yeah. that there is a difference between B2B and B2C buyers. There isn't. When we look, what we find is even B2C buyers, all purchases now are considered. There is no difference. There is not a non-considered and a considered. All things are considered. And the reason all things are considered is because of the risk asking a question. There is an inherent risk in asking any question or buying any product. Right. And what we need to do is we need to realize that people mitigate risks and the ability to ask a question and get a trusted answer in the palm of your hands instantaneously mitigates that risk. And so when you look at the data, Google has found that even the search term best toothbrush, not best electric toothbrush, best toothbrush is growing at a rate of 100 percent year over year. Because if the consumer is standing there looking at a wall of toothbrushes, how do they make a decision? Do they read the packaging, which is another myth, right? That these packagings are what drives the conversions and they drive for some. But remember, we're going to large level ideas. And so we, we, we've built that down. And, and really what we see is all purchases are now considered, not just B2B purchases. And the length of the consideration is based on the risk that is involved. And a B2B buyer has a much greater risk, right? Because you're buying something that if you buy the wrong thing, you could get fired. You don't get fired if you buy the wrong pair of shoes. You just have a little bit of remorse, right? And so we need to realize it's the risk that's inherent to the decision that dictates the length of the decision um, and and of the consideration process. But all products are considered now. That's eye-opening because I think I've fallen into the trap of thinking that B2C is sort of this on this whim kind of thing. Like, and I always would use the example of like buying shoes. Like, oh, I saw enough brand notifications and I just, my soul went out and bought shoes. But when I really think about it, that's not the case. I mean, I, the shoes I, even the running shoes I buy, you know, they can get kind of pricey. So you got to really think about it. And, you know, we're not just throwing away hundreds of dollars here. So you really kind of, oh, can I get the special? Do they have two for one? You're really kind of thinking about it. But to your point, not as much as not as much risk in that purchase because I can always return them. I've done that too. Uh, they don't quite fit the way I thought they did in the store. Return them. Whereas you can't necessarily return a, a big B2B contract with a million dollars. Right. Risk is different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of the, the basis of it. Those, yeah, those are some big myths. I mean, there's lots of myths that are out there. And, and I think if we really – this is like the whole premise of my new book, right? We need to understand – the majority of marketing, marketing is an iterative process, right? This is not something that we started yesterday. We've been been doing marketing for centuries. Um, And specifically, we've been doing modern marketing since the last golden era. We've been doing digital marketing since the internet, right? Right. So if we kind of break this down, we realize that these are iterative ideas. Now, we have to take one step back to really think about this from a large scale. What works in marketing is dictated based on the media environment that it operates within, right? You can't do email marketing if email isn't a medium that's a possibility, right? When email becomes a possibility, that creates a new environment. And I'm right. very big on Marshall McLuhan. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this probably won't know Marshall McLuhan, 
right? You have That's to the message, right? Yeah, you either have to. Yeah, you've got to go through like some type of an MBA program, be a super nerd like myself, um, you know, or or be Canadian. And if you're Canadian, <laughs> most a lot of Canadians know him because he was a Canadian. Um, he's known as Canada's greatest thinker. And that's his actual moniker. Um, so if we, if we put McLuhan's ideas into play, McLuhan says the medium is the message. The medium and the, the media environment that a thing operates in dictates its relationship to everything else around it, right? It, it, it dictates how they see, how they feel, how they think. And he puts a very specific spin on this. He says, think about it. He says, our idea of love, our idea of romantic love, is nothing more than a byproduct of the media environment that we exist within, right? So, you know, one of the big things that he talked about was this was, you know, so he was around in the 60s. I mean, to be clear, this guy's around in the 60s and he's discussing the importance of mobile media and how mobile media and the connectivity of the global village will change the world in 1960, right? So that's kind of why he's an amazing thinker, right? That's why he's known as that. Did they even have mobile at that point? I mean, was it- No, the, they didn't have the internet. Zach Morris phone or- No, they didn't have anything. It was 1960, dude. Like. This is the first televised presidential debate. You need to think about that. Ah. This is the time of the first televised presidential debate, right? It was Nixon versus Kennedy. And he talks about the differences in who's going to win based on how they interact with the medium better. And his prediction was that Kennedy is going to win because he is going to look better on the television than his, his opponent. And when the medium changes, that then changes how people perceive things, how they make decisions, and how they act. Now, fast forward to this theory, right? So my research has been really heavy into media theory. And what I found is we entered a new media era. And when we entered that new media era, we left an old point in time, which means the foundations of what we created, the games that we played in that old point in time, we just iterated upon, right? So we just iterated. As new channels came about, we took the, with the same tactics, and then we applied them to the new channels. It's the same in any time we grow, right? We take the same things that we know and we apply them until we realize those things don't work and then come up with new things in the world. Right. Um, just how things happen. Right? So then we look at that idea and, and when you look at all of these aspects of, of marketing that were created during that past era, which is essentially all of marketing, right? Right, right message, right person, right time. The, the idea that public relations can sway an entire marketplace at one time. Um, the idea of um, you know, sex sells all these different ideas, They're, they work in a specific media environment. Right. When we move to the media environment, they are no longer applicable. Um, so that's why we see so many myths that are being busted right now because we live in a radically new media environment, which is what I classify the infinite media era. You know, it's like interesting. It, it shows the danger of trying to just use the strategy that worked, well, worked in Mad Men and that looked fun. Um, or, yeah. or it reminds me of SEO, you know, the SEO that worked in the nineties is the light years different than what works now. And if you try to use what worked then now, you probably get banned by Google. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's exactly right. You know, things, things change. Um, and I'm just talking about massive fundamental change. Right. Um, you know, and, and we're talking about like, you know, serious repercussions, but, but you hit the nail on the head, right? Let's talk about this real quick. Let's talk about the problem that every one of us marketers face, right? We face the problem where we go to somebody in our business and they say, we don't like that marketing. We think you should do this, right? We are no longer looked at as doctors. No, people don't say, what do I need to do? Tell me how to do this, right? We take an idea to them and they say, well, I don't like that. We should do this as if they're the expert, right? This is the WebMD to the modern doctor, right? Because they're so inundated with modern marketing, they believe they know what works in marketing because they see it, 
right? And so, you know, you may say, you may have a brand come to you, right? I, you know, talk to agencies all the time and they'll say, hey, we've got people that want to do X, Y, and Z and just list off horrid ideas, right? They're right. a small startup with no money and they think a billboard is going to be the best use of their funds or a radio advertisement. Yeah. Those things can be applicable in a strategy, but probably not at that point in time, right? No one's going to listen to an ad and call you, right? Especially if you're in any kind of a brand in a modern day. Um, I don't even know if they do that for, uh, you know, we, we constantly hear all the ads for lawyers, right? Wanting to call the lawyers. I have a lawyer buddy friend. He goes, yeah, no one gets any business from <laughs> ads from law firms. Right. They all do it though when they start because they see that other people do it, believing that it's going to work for them because they see other people doing it, right? We have this idea that people are rational. And so if we see them doing something, we believe that they have put the rational thought behind it and they know it works. And so they've already done the legwork and we can just follow along. And when we right. do that, we fall into that trap like you just said, right? And we're just blindly following the blind, you know? So it's like, it's like we're being marketing lemmings sometimes. Just you know, we see other people made a decision to do something and to your point, we give them credit for like, well, they must have done their research to figure this thing out. Maybe not. Maybe they're just shooting from the hip and, and they're completely off and wrong and they're just burning a bunch of money. You know, it reminds me of like Super Bowl ads. You see an ad and sometimes they're really good and everyone just like celebrates them on Twitter. Sometimes they're terrible. And then you have to wonder, maybe I'm not the target audience, but if I am the target audience, this is terrible. Who made that decision? You know, like what person was in that ivory tower somewhere saying, you know what? Thanks marketing for your advice, but I'm going to web and this a little bit and I'm going to, this, this ad would be fantastic. You know, some, some CEO sort of out of touch with the customer thinks that they're the customer and then it just falls flat on its face. Right. And, and, and we really drill into a lot of this. A lot of this, you know, is easily solved by some basics, right? These are ideas yeah. that people are creating in a vacuum. They're not co-creating these ideas with their marketplace. They're saying, I know how to manipulate my audience which is then the other inherent problem, right? One of the marketing fundamentals is that we as marketers are manipulators, right? We know what it takes to manipulate somebody. That's a fundamental flaw, right? We should not think about ourselves as manipulators. We should think about ourselves as community builders, as helpers, as enablers. Right. That's what works. That's what humans like, right? No friend, like think about your natural friend groups. If you have a friend that's constantly manipulating people, he's not, or she's not your friend for very long, right. right? And we need to think about that of how we treat our audiences, right? Do we treat them like we can manipulate them? And if we do, we need to realize those things don't work. I mean, case in point to your Super Bowl ads, right? Dilly Dilly, Budweiser and Dilly Dilly. There's just dilly a dilly. big, yeah, <laughs> I love it. it has no bearing on their sales, right? They are losing massively. Are they? Didn't help? No, half a percent still per year decline in Budweiser. It's true. I still buy other beer. <laughs> yeah. But I like Dilly Dilly, but yeah. And yeah. So let's, let's, let's play with that real quick. Because you like it, we assume that there is some type of positive relationship and correlation to the brand. And that it's wrong because you like Dilly Dilly, you buy craft beer. Right? right. And so we need to think about this from a fundamental aspect. And this goes back to the myth of sex sells, right? There's this idea that if I can get somebody to look at this and titillating images will get people to look at things, right? But will that have any effect for the brand? And there was a great study that just came out and I can't cite these statistics off the top of my head. It's been too long since I read that report. Sure. Um, essentially says that there is no correlation to an uplift for the brand for any type of sex, like sexy imagery, sex sales. Think about this. What made Paris Hilton famous? Mm, 
Well, Certain well, video maybe, that got leaked to the world, I thought. Ah, well, you know, there was that. <laughs> but there was also the Carl's Jr. ad with her eating the hamburger dripping on her chest. Oh. Remember that? that yeah, that was the first ad that Carl's Jr. was really doubling down on this idea of bombastic sex sales. Okay. Carl's Jr. put out a statement last year, we no longer want to be known for boobs, but food. And they showed that there was not an increase in sales based on that advertising methodology. Right. So, you know, this idea that those things work because people remember them or they hear them or they think about them. That's the thing we got to get past because it's a myth that doesn't really hold true anymore. I'm glad they did that, too, though, because they're helping smash the myth and help us all learn from that. I mean, you, you mentioned that. I'm thinking like Donica Patrick. She's a race car driver. I can't remember what the ad was for. Maybe it was an Internet host. Like, you know, it's yeah, just GoDaddy. It was GoDaddy. GoDaddy. Go was OK. Yeah. And, it, and once again, they've moved away from that strategy as well. Interesting. It makes sense. It, you know, if it's not working and they're testing it and they're able to see that, yeah. I, that's a really good point. The idea that a, a like does not equal purchase. A look does not equal purchase. Well, and we need to think about this, right? So I said, we need to reimagine this idea of PR and PR's role, right? So here's the, the traditional theory of public relations. And by the way, most people are pretty, just think about this. Public relations starts in 1917. There's a man named Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays, before he creates public relations, was a propagandist for the United States military selling war bonds at home, right? And if you listen to my podcast, you've heard this story, but you know, it's, it's fascinating. His uncle, he sends his uncle a box of cigars. Well, his uncle sends him back a book that he had just written. The book was the introduction to, um, I can't remember the name of the book. It, his uncle is Sigmund Freud, right? It was the first, it was the introduction to like psychoanalysis, I think was his. Sure. And this is where Bernays gets the idea of how he can use media and how he can sit somebody down on the couch to understand their inner desires and then craft a campaign, right? That's where the, the antithesis of, of public relations comes from. It's a deep understanding of an individual and a human, first and foremost, not the manipulation of the media, right? It has a, a precursor. We move this idea forward to modern time, and what we see is we see brands still vying for mass media attention, assuming that mass media attention moves the needle, right? That it's narrative control, right? And, and there are two types of narrative control that a modern brand must nail, and public relations only nails one of the two. Right? It nails the narrative control outside of the buying cycle. Right? Outside of the buying cycle, you have narrative control for general branding purposes, all these other ideas. But none of that translates into the buying cycle because to your exact point, you know dilly dilly, but your buying cycle, you're standing there in the counter and the, uh, looking at beer. You're not saying, wow, I remember dilly dilly, I should buy this, right? To the right. same, any modern individual, they go to Google and they start asking questions and they go through a buying journey. Public relations is nowhere on that buying journey and its power does not translate because the context of anything that they find on that journey is radically more powerful than any public relations piece could ever be because it's in the context of the moment helping them achieve their goal at that point in time. That is the power, right? So we need to think about narrative control across a customer journey as well as across a marketplace. So this kind of makes me think about the whole notion that brand awareness comes into play it is kind of like what we're talking about with PR is that equal to this idea of this brand hey, well we didn't get any sales from that but we got some good brand awareness from that I mean that's so this is a really hard question to answer um, people knowing you is definitely better than people not knowing you okay you definitely yep. say that um, but here's the trick right when does brand awareness play and who does it play for 
right? If you're a startup, brand awareness is not going to do a whole lot for you, right? Because it's just too far away from actually motivating somebody to take a step forward to buy your thing, right? So if you're spending money on advertisements for brand awareness in an early stage, probably not the best use of funds, specifically because you have limited funds. Now you flip to the other side and you say, well, you're a major corporation, you know, then brand awareness plays a different scenario, right? Because now you're talking about, all right, we're talking about complex scenarios, complex buying cycles, the, you know, the C-suite may not be in that buyer's journey, but they may be the one that says, I've never heard of this brand, so we're not buying from them, right? That is a real thing, right? I've had plenty of people not buy it from me because their CEO had never heard of my company. Right. right? So, you know, it depends on the scenario that, you're find, that you find yourself in. Um, but once again, right, brand awareness can easily be, if that's the problem, I mean, we don't have to think about brand awareness from massive PR standpoint. I mean, hell, ABM, 110% solves that for any B2B brand, right? You want to go solve brands, sell to a brand, and they never heard of you before? You solve that with $10 in an ABM program. Right. So instead of boiling the ocean, you're, you're kind of boiling your bucket or your cup, it's more targeted approach. You still get your brand, but you're not investing the world into it because it's not as nearly as important as when the buying journey is happening, when it's that moment of truth. Yeah. So, I mean, once again, exactly right. You know, so that's how all these things play together. So, you know, so brand awareness does play a thing. Brand is very much a thing for the longevity of, of an actual company, right? The stronger someone's brand is, um, the more forgiving your customers will be when you make a mistake, um, which directly translates into churn, into revenue. Um, the longer you're going to keep those customers, once again, that's a massive driver of the increase in revenue. I think there was just a great statistic that came out the other day that I think um, the profit for most brands comes from existing customers. I think like 50 to 60%, or it might be even greater than that, of the, re of the revenue that a brand drives comes from its existing customers. So maintaining that existing customer base um, is, is a massive thing and brand helps with that because that is now now let's then shift as to how do we define brand in the modern time right so the old definition of brand was the myth that what the company says to the world is the brand that that the world has which is true only in a limited media environment okay that the access and creation of media is limited because if only certain people can create media and there's only so much out there and it's not accessible what you say stands, right? Now we shift to the infinite era and what a brand is, is no longer what the brand, what the company says and projects, it's the sum of all experiences that the brand creates, right? So every experience matters, right? So the, the sales experience, and I always you know, tell people this simple question, right? All right, so you, know, you produce a lead and you pass it to the sales team and the sales team botches the deal. Who's the customer pissed at? Right. They're not. They're not pissed at, at the salesperson. They're not pissed at your sales department. They're pissed at your brand, right? right. You, you know, it's, it's the sum of all experiences across the entire, um, you know, customer journey. And that, that hits on like hiring experience too. You, people go to apply for a job, the terrible experience that reflects the brand. Every little tiny thing ends up on Glassdoor or G2 Crowd or the App Exchange. There's all these different places where people are now voicing those opinions to your point the old the old world we didn't have that well you're going to put a, a one-liner in the newspaper that you had a bad experience no you're just going to move on or tell your friend but now that tell your friend is magnified so big yeah and then and then fold that back into what we just said right narrative control across the journey so now what are those people finding across the journey are all these negative experiences hence your brand is you don't have one right you have a bad brand is what you have you have a branch is bad you're gonna take a dive on that one
You know, you, you, you've been talking about podcasts. We're on a podcast. How meta is that? Uh, yeah. Uh, hey. <laughs> and what I want to know is earlier we we're talking about, you know, Marshall, we we're talking about new channels, things evolving. It's very interesting that we've, we've, I've seen podcasts become more of a thing. Uh, perhaps oh, yeah. from a content creation perspective, perhaps because we don't have to worry about professional video anymore. Uh, but there's many different reasons. But now we've got these podcasts coming about. You've got yours. You know, talk about what are you seeing? Do you see this as a trend in marketing? What yeah, is, so listen, why is it here? Yeah. Um, so first off, if you want to do anything and talk about podcasts on data, I think Tom Webster um, did some phenomenal research on podcasts, and that's with Edison. Um, it's just, I think to, to right now, that's the best research on podcasts and where the industry is. Okay. I think there's two things we need to think about. One, yes, there's lots of podcasts, but let's, that's one, let's, let's take one step back. Is there the market to support it, right? Just right. because lots of marketers are creating them, are there people listening? Um, and I'd say that's an interesting question to think about um, because, you know, we did the research back in 2013 at Exact Target, And what we found was marketers are the first to adopt a new channel long before their customers are there, right? So, you know, Podcasts have a very low penetration rate to a target audience marketplace, right? Only so many people listen to podcasts right now. Not all of your potential customers listen to it. Got it. Um, you know, but then there's lots of, but then we project forward and say, all right, you know, those people doing these things now, they are probably gonna have to be doing those things in the future. Google has made, has made statements that they're gonna start indexing podcasts and general search queries. Now, if they do that, that will be phenomenal, but then there's still a problem. Because if the person finds it on their phone, they're now going to have to listen to that podcast, which means the reality is they're probably just going to bypass it and go to an article, right? Because you can read something much faster than you can listen to something. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, if, if real time is, is an idea that they want, podcasts are not real time. Um, but as a medium, I think it's a, it's a phenomenal medium. I love it. Um, and that's why I created the podcast. I created the podcast because I suck at writing and I'm much better talking. And it's the, the simplistics of it. I've read your book. You don't suck at writing. <laughs> this current book is taken. This is the third full rewrite on this new book. Right? Cool. I'm, I'm in one right now myself, and it's torture. It's literally. Oh, it's so hard. I'm just not good. I'm just not a good writer. Yeah. Talk not that I'm a good speaker, but I like to think I'm better. No, you're a great speaker too. But yeah, I, I could see that. You just just talk and let that become the medium, as opposed to the writing is a challenge. So is that what sort of led you to experiment and? Yeah, what led me to experiment was really kind of a, a trifecta of things. One, I really saw a lot of podcasts in a format, and I saw a very tight cluster of everyone doing the same thing. And I just said, well, let's break out of that mold and try something different. And so what I did was I created a mini-series. Um, there's two reasons why I did a mini-series. The mini-series was really, it was just me, right? This is me in my closet. I don't have anything else. Um, my camping mat was my, you know, sound barrier buffer or whatever. And I, I sat in, in the closet and shut the door. Did you really, you recorded in the closet? Oh yeah. Dude, you haven't seen that picture? Oh yeah. No. Yeah. I didn't even have a chair. I squatted on the floor cause my computer sat on the yeah. trunk in my closet. Yeah. That's, that's cool, man. I spent three months in my closet. Um, so then you've got that. So just me, which means if I was to do a daily, weekly or monthly podcast, it would be very difficult for me to have to create that in scope of all the other work I'm doing. Right. right? So I, could, I could create a mini series that only had to be launched once that could then be evergreen content and live for a very long time. Right. So that's why I did that. That was the one reason. Uh, the second reason why I did the, the, the podcast as a mini series um, was too, just because I wanted it to be evergreen. Right. If you end up with 
lots of episodes and someone decides to find you, it becomes difficult because they, all they can do is join your next episode, right? No one's going to go back through all your episodes and catch up, right? Scott Stratton has like 500 episodes in his podcast. It's very daunting to like be, oh, I'm going to jump in the storyline now. Um, so I decided to keep it a short mini series where anyone can start from one and work theirself all the way through, get the entire story because um, it's story form. That's what a mini series is. I wanted to heavy on story form. Um, and so that's kind of why I did it that way. And then the approach was radical um, to kind of fit the line of my new book. So, yeah, story form, what is it like eight? I think it's eight, eight or nine. Yeah, it's not nine total episodes. Nine, Each one yeah. Is 20 minutes. Yeah. yeah and and it, the style, I think the way you'd compared it, and I've, I've listened to it. It's very much like this where if the podcast serial, which anyone listening, if you haven't listened to serial is a serial mini series podcast. It's amazing. Uh, season one is my favorite, but serial meets Freakonomics, uh, yeah. which is just data and facts and interesting backstories. And I, I think that that perfectly describes it. And it's very, it, it's got a cool editing to it. There's, there's sound behind the scenes and it's like there's drama and there's, things going on. I no idea you're in your closet, but the sound is really good. <laughs> yeah. All in my closet and all, uh, all edited on GarageBand. Wow. You know, do you don't, prefer- don't, don't do that, by the way. It's, it's, it's very hard. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> refer to here. Don't edit on GarageBand. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah. You can spend hours editing too. You can go down some dark, dark hole and surface yeah. later. You weren't even on a meth trip. You were just editing your podcast and you, you come back from nowhere. Uh, do you, do you prefer those styles? Cause I found that like when I created even this one, it, I created it based on some of the shows that I liked listening to. It's exactly what I did. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, so this gets to a really big point of content. Um, so I've, I've been trying to figure out, you know, I've been trying, I've been getting much more active on social lately and trying to figure out, you know, social and, I don't remember who it was, and I'm sorry I won't be able to give appropriate credit to whoever this was, but it was, you need to create what you love. What you like is what you should create, because if you like the stuff that you are creating, you will create consistently and more of it, right? And that's the secret, is consistency, um, and that's it, right? So if you don't like what you're creating, if you don't like the format, if you don't like the style, it's going to be very difficult to keep that up as a cadence. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult for either of us to be uh, frequent book writers. <laughs> I think that's the exception to the rule. But yeah, I love that that point you bring up is to be consistent, right? Because just like in the days of you know blogging, you can't just go to the gym, you know, a hundred hundred hours in a row. You're going to injure yourself. You got to go, you know once a day for a certain period of time. So content needs to be consistent. You got to stay with it. You can't kind of just do it in spurts. Exactly right. Um, and, and the second is that there, there's, it's not that one format is better than the other. They're formats, right? And the execution of an idea is what matters. It's, it's not the format of the content. It's because it's, I mean, everything has been great, right? You can look at an example of everything that's, that just knocked it out of the park for somebody. Oh, yeah. The execution of a format that, that really is the difference. And the consistency because people start, you know, they get in the habit of like, okay, I'm going to download this episode. I'm going to check what's on here. I got a commute to attack or I got a trip I got to travel on. Let me yeah. check for an episode. If you still have, if you have one there, if you're consistent, you know, they're going to, they're going to check back in. Do you, do you see yourself doing another mini series be, now that you've finished the first one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll, if I ever, yeah, the answer is yes. Um, I already kind of know what I want to do. Um, it'll, it'll probably move a little bit farther afield. Um, I, I really kind of like to, to blend 
the ideas of the world together through the lens of marketing, right? Kind of like see the world and then kind of translate it back. And so I've kind of got this idea where I'm just going to run around the, the world and, and meet with really rebellious people who've done like amazing things and just kind of figure out like kind of, you know, what did you learn? How did you do it? Because um, a lot of these people are very successful in the end, right? And they all have different paths. So it's just kind of getting to this idea of kind of just, it's just fun. But I also thought for me, it was like, that's also just, I don't know if it works, but I was like, hey, that's a really cool way to go meet a lot of cool people. That's what I was A hundred percent. I think sometimes that's the, the unspoken, that's a real value of the podcasting is the, the networking, if you will, but also the relationships that can occur when you're spending a lot of time talking to someone. Right, 110%. You know, inviting somebody into a podcast is an honor. Um, you know, regardless of how many people are on your podcast, it's still an honor because you had to choose somebody. So being right. Clever, was good. You know, for me too, and especially in this, you know, this infinite era, I, I want to hear more about that too. We've got so many distractions that we don't often have a chance to say, have a, an hour plus conversation with someone directly without interruptions. And so a little bit of that, because people are listening or watching, we're focused, you know, like I, I can't have a conversation with you and then be checking my email and my Skype and all these other things at the same time. Uh, so it's kind of, it, it builds like a kind of relationship that you don't normally get these days. You know? Yeah. What's, what, what's rare. I mean, you always like, we always want to create something that's rare, right? Rare things have value and what we really want to create is value, right? So what yeah. is rare at a current point in time is face to face and actual human interaction. Um, because we, we can hide behind the phones and we do a lot, right? I think that the, we're behind a screen like 12 hours a day, 10 hours a day, something it's ridiculous. Um, but I mean, I just did literally right before I hopped on this, I do an office hour at two o'clock and it's a Zoom meeting um, and it's, you know, open. Anyone can join. Um, and it's like three or four people will join. And then we'll just, you know, talk. But to your point exactly, it's face-to-face -face interactions and you get things this way that you don't other ways. Um, and so I think that's, once again, to the benefit of the host. Um, in the, in the conversations. Um, and then if the audience enjoys those conversations, I mean, then, then it works for everyone. It's so true. It, it, it's rebellious. It's something different. I, I like the, I, I mean, I've joined one of those and, and it's cool. It's just a bunch of people on a screen just talking. And I know you've said that you don't want to be the guru for the people joining. You kind of are, but you want to, you know, just help people walk through problems. And it's fantastic. It's not what you normally see. It's not even the kind of like salesmanship at a trade show floor. It's just people talking. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I loved about it. And I, so let's just, let's talk about this real quick. So I just yeah. wanted to find a better way to engage with people on social media. Yeah. And so I was like, all right. I was like, a lot of people would look up to me and say, all right, you know, he's got a lot of smart stuff you could talk about, you know, so a lot of people ask me questions. Um, you know, and I do, I, you know, my official role is a thought leadership role for the organization I work for. And so I was like, well, I could do it over Twitter. Well, I talked to somebody and like, you know, it's a lot better if you do it face to face and just do a zoom meeting. Right. And so I was like, all right, so that's what we're doing. Um, and it's, it's so awesome because let me take you back to when I'm 25, I'm 25. I've got my first startup. Right. And so I know jack shit about life. Right. Right. And Right. As we all realize, as we get older in life, like we knew so little, how do we even survive? You know, like how did I not die at 25? was a pretty good right. question. Right. And so I've got a startup and I realized I know nothing about a couple key areas that I need to know about. Right. I know sales and I know marketing, right. At, at that limited scope of what I knew at that time, but I didn't know anything about technology. I didn't know how to run a company. Um, you know, I didn't know anything about managing other people. Right. So what I decided to do was, all right, I'm going to create a gang. So I, yeah, I was like, yes, create a gang. 
It's called the Gang of Five. This is no nice. joke. It's actually what happens. Um, so I create the Gang of Five, and we meet at coffee at 11 o'clock every third, was it every Friday at 11 o'clock on 10th Street at Starbucks oh. in Atlanta. And there was about, you know, it, was, it ended up being eight of us. <laughs> We're talking about, I mean, these are some extremely impressive individuals. I mean, one of them, I think, run, like, runs Twitter product now. Another one um, has a, a startup that's, that's done really well. You've got and lots of amazing technologists. But what we were able to do is we provided free consulting for each other in our area of expertise, right? So, you know, the people who weren't sales and marketing would ask me, how do they, I'm about to go to a trade show. How do I do these things? What do I do? And I could walk them through those. Conversely, when I was like, all right, we want to do this in a product. How do I do this? You know, I'm facing these challenges. They would do that. Not only would they would actually like walk in and help write code, wow. you know, so this very, we essentially realized that it was essentially free CEO consulting. We were all helping each other out and we all became much better because of it. And that's really how I view these office hours, right? And, and it's like anyone can do these things. Just do them with your audience. And the, the person that told me about these, um, or who kind of filled me in, it, she does these with her actual customers, right? So she does these with her customers. It's a great way to know your customers. I mean, how many of us don't actually talk to customers face-to-face, -face, right? This is a phenomenal market research tool. Right. Um, you know, and so it's like we can just so easily do that. But um, BSX, sorry, went on a tangent on those offices. No, I love that. The gang of five, that's actually eight, but all those, th that's really cool. And, and yeah. mixing it up, you know, because I, I think the lukewarm, generic, what everyone else is doing, especially when they're walking off a cliff of the wrong kind of, you know, they're, they're not, they don't know about the myths. They're just following along. It's so refreshing to, to do a Zoom you know, and just hop on there and, and have a conversation. It's, it's fantastic. My yeah, and they'll be like, hey, I'm trying this and it sucks. Like, what are you doing? Right. You know, right. and it was yeah. like, well, we tried that. It was, it, it's so, it's, uh, it's empowering, it's refreshing, and it, because it's community and it's real people talking right. about the problems that we actually have and actually solving, and these people don't know each other, right? Right. So people just hop on and tell your name and then we get to going, you know? Right. Right. I think people, people are sharing details and getting some real advice from you on that. It, it's fantastic. It, it's, it's, it's one of those things, I think, a trend that I'd like to see everyone start doing where you, you rehumanize, there's another word for your, our list, you rehumanize your, uh, your leads and your audience. Yeah. So the challenge I have on this, it, it kind of all comes back to, you know, the proof is in the pudding, you know, you paint, you, you got to justify things to the people paying the bills with tracking, you know, with, with reporting and ROI, oh, yeah. you know, where, where do you see reporting going? And then it, maybe we touch on, you know, the whole multi-touch concept too. We want to, we want to bust another myth. Like, can I still wield the hammer? Oh, it's still on your, your side of the room, man. So keep right. going. So, uh, so, so, I'm, so this kind of comes out of a lot of conversations with a couple of brilliant, brilliant minds, right? Um, and, and one is Gary Angel. He used to run digital analytics for Ernst & Young. Um, now he, he's had a couple of startups after that, all in the, the you know, digital reporting space. Sure. Um, and, and another is Dominique um, Hassans, and he was the uh, CEO of the Marketing Science Institute, uh, professor over at UCLA, wrote a book. Um, I can find it behind me somewhere. Empirical generalizations. <laughs> Got a lot of good books back there. Yeah. Empirical generalizations about marketing impact, right? Like, wow. Yeah, this is a pretty phenomenal book. Um, but he, may, he makes a statement, and, and I kind of doubled down on this statement and kind of played with it. But he says ROI is not an efficiency, it's not an effectiveness measure, it's an efficiency measure. Right? And so here's what, and, and Gary also goes along with this as well, where, where ROI is a blinking red light, it's not a model, 
right? It, and so let's think about this, right? Currently, the number one method that marketers and brands, by the way, business leaders are asking for this. The number one way that we are showing value is this idea of ROI. And if we extrapolate that down, multi-touch is just a variation of ROI. ROI is still the underlying reporting method. Multi-touch is just breaking up that and attributing it to lots of different things along the way rather than a single thing. But it's the idea of, one, this is a lagging indicator. It gives you no prescriptive direction. Um, it doesn't tell you how to fix it. It's just a blinking red light, right? And in three, it does not show holistic value, right? It shows the interaction of a thing without anything else around it, right? It takes everything else out of context. Um, you then move into the ideas of attribution modeling and multi-touch. Does it help a marketer? Yes, it can help a marketer. It can help a marketer understand where to do things, how to do things differently. It's, it's an efficiency metric. It's not a value metric. We should not be taking those metrics to our board and saying, this is what the value of our efforts are. When we do that, we completely kill ourselves. And here's a fascinating statistic. So I guess three or four years ago, I got with LinkedIn and I ran a research project with them. And I wanted to find out, and it's called the B2B Persona Project. You can research it and find it. But essentially, I wanted to know what is the average tenure of every profession in business. So we broke business professions down into 90 personas, right, across four different verticals, right? Wow. And we broke those down based on senior, uh, individual contributor, um, you know, based on the, the level of tenure. A marketer across all verticals of business is the shortest tenure of any profession in any business, the average really? of a marketer inside of any business is 2.6 years. That is shorter than the lifespan of a hamster. Wow. Yeah. A hamster is going to outlive your tenure at your company. How long are hamsters? Like four or five three. years? Average is three. Three years. Yeah. I just, I had to research that. I had to Google what only lives three years. It's a years. good number. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we, we, so we lost the shortest of, of anyone in the company. Right. And, and if, we, if we ask the question, why is that? It's because we are unable to prove our value. Right. Right. And, right. and prove our value efficiently and effectively because we all know what we do matters, right? That's, you're right. never going to find a marketer who does not believe what they do matters. The question is, how can we translate that into specific and accurate value to the business? And the best way to do that is a model and I believe the weighted pipeline model is the best. Um, and so essentially, if we think about the differences, ROI and all attribution metrics, right? Whether it's um, first touch, last touch, equal touch, um, however you want to do your attribution, it's still based on ROI. It's still going to give you a number, which is a blinking red light that says, this is working, this isn't working. If you follow that, it leads to lots of problems. Number one is silver bullet mentality. This worked. All we got to do is do this more. That's right. not true. The second is we invested $100, we got a 30% return. If we invest another $100, we'll get another 30% return. Returns are not linear. You're going to get a smaller return on the second investment than you did on the first, right? Because it's harder each time, right? right. Um, so that's a, that leads to a low, doesn't, it leads to inaccurate investing in what was required to, to execute effective marketing. Um, you then flip to this idea, and it's not holistic, right? It can't tell you things outside, right? There's sure. no way to do an ROI on word of mouth. There's no way to show the power of brand. By the way, we're doing branding. ROI can't show anything on branding. Right. Um, so we move to this idea of weighted pipeline. And so here's how weighted pipeline works. So I learned about weighted pipeline, I guess, back in the day. Um, after we, I think we probably read Aaron Ross's Predictable Revenue. 
and started implementing this. And I believe weighted pipeline is one of the measurement methods of, of the modern sales pipeline, right? Okay. You lead at the early stage of a sales pipeline, you, you give it lower value, but this allows sales to then give a definable metric, right? The weighted pipeline, how much is in our actual pipeline right now ready to close? When is it going to close? And at what degree of predictability is it going to close? Those are massive business metrics that business leaders need to drive their business. That's why this is just, everyone is using this. Right. If we take one step back and say, well, wait a second, why can sales use it? Well, sales can use it because they have a CRM, which then gives a data point of who is where on the journey, how much that thing is worth at that point in time. Well, if we look at marketing automation, it can do that exact same thing across the entire customer journey, not just within the sales cycle. So now we can apply a weighted pipeline to the entire idea of the business across from start to finish. And we can start to measure, all right, how many people are moving from our audience into the customer journey? And then by stage, how many people are in each stage? And we measure three specific things, the volume inside of each stage, the velocity of people moving to the next stage, and the efficiency that people move to the next stage. And this really tells us exactly what we need to know, right? Now this becomes a model and this allows us to show holistic efforts, right? So this question of brand, well, if we stop doing brand, do any of those numbers change? Hmm. Right? So now we can start to see holistic effects. We can start to see these things or we increase brand and those things increase, right? So now we can start to see word of mouth being represented and the actual value that marketing is representing. Now marketing can say, Hey, when we do things, here's the value of the pipeline that we are creating. This is the revenue stream, right? We talk about demand. This allows us to actually measure that and say, we're increasing, we're decreasing, and you business leader are going to have this X output in Y days, right? Um, not to mention, then we can start to see where things are breaking down, right? So let's say that you've got at stage two, and I'm just throwing arbitrary numbers, right? Sure. We see a decrease in efficiency in stage two. That is now tells you what your problem is. Your problem is you need to go back into stage two and look at what is yeah. doing, moving people to the next stage and realize that's the problem you now need to fix. Now go one step higher. This now becomes a model that directs what marketing should be doing on a daily basis because now we know where the highest return for time can be put. If I know that I've got a list of a backlog of things, I need to create a new piece of content, a new blog, sales needs content, um, and I've got this customer journey I've got to manage and all those automations that are out there. Right. I've only got 24 hours in a day and assuming I'm working all of them, right? I can only lose <laughs> four hours to, to, to those problems. Right. So the highest and best use of my time, right? And so we can say, and we can then make those determinations based on those calculations and say, all right, if we increase the efficiency and here, this is where the math is really powerful. Okay. When we start to measure these things, if we, met, if we increase the efficiency of people moving from one stage to the next and do that across four stages, the average B2B buying cycle is four stages, we increase net revenue by 40%. Think about that. You increase the efficiency. You just make sure 1% more people move from one stage to the next consistently across four stages. You increase the total number of revenue by 40%. How many marketing campaigns, how many creative campaigns can you create that dramatically increase revenue by 40%? reliably right making the changes early on affects it in much a much bigger way than than affecting changes later on that's interesting that snowball effect happens and i also i'm hearing that instead of being a lagging blinking red light indicator of what already occurred and you can't really change it, you don't really know what happened you, you can not only make changes but it's a leading indicator you see where the issues are it makes total sense yeah so i mean so i'm a i'm a i'm very anti-roi as a value metric 
Um, I'm not anti-ROI as a metric. I just believe that we use it in the wrong ways. And I believe that to our detriment, if we use ROI to show our value to the business leaders, we are doing ourselves a disservice because we are not showing the true value we bring to the organization. That's true. That's true. The challenge I've seen can be, I, I think this is our challenge, right? As marketers is proving our value. And I think sometimes I've struggled when I was a you know, many moons ago when I didn't have marketing automation or any of these tools trying to to even know what I do, does what I do matter to the company? Like, I don't even know. Um, So everyone's trying to prove themselves. And I I see that going right sometimes and going wrong and it can lead to some funky marketing and some funky reporting. What, what is the best way for a marketer to show someone outside of marketing their value? Yeah. Weighted pipeline. To, To me, it's weighted pipeline. Right, because that shows three things. It shows what the total amount of demand is. It shows when that demand is going to convert into actual revenue and the efficiency of the speed at which it's going to convert. Right, so you've got some very specific measures. Um, And here's the biggest thing I think we need to think about. This number is what venture capitalists use to evaluate companies they're going to invest in. Got it. That's already a, this is already a defined metric used by the, the biggest business buyers in the world. Right. We just need to think about that and apply that inside of our own organizations. Um, and so that, to me, that's, that's all it is, is we just need to think about weighted pipeline. And, and if we really get down to it, I want to get to a point where weighted pipeline lives on the balance sheet of the business because it's an asset. Yeah. We can now prove that it's an asset, right? If we can prove that this thing is an asset and that this math works, and by the way, the math is completely accurate because it's based off your own internal data. Right we now have a very solid leg to stand on and can elevate the position of marketing, not because we want to, but because we have to, right? If everything is an experience and the experience happens across the entire journey, like how are we able to then one, prove that we need to have somebody that sits on top of those other organizations that can help ensure a cohesive experience across them? How can we then show that doing that is the correct thing and that it proves value? NPS is cool, but your MPS score moving from four to five doesn't, is not a revenue number. Your, your executives don't give a rat's ass because it's not the number they care about. And that's the important part about weighted pipeline. It translates marketing value into revenue. That's awesome. I think that I, this, I don't, I love chatting with you because this sound, I, I, I see the future. It's like, it's foggy. And I see like you, you should have, blowing blowing wind across it and the clouds are parting a little bit i get to see a glimpse into the future of because i know there's there's plenty of platforms that could potentially show all these kind of things you know in one day so that's exciting I, yeah, I, and here's the thing you need to realize yeah the platforms are, are very rarely are you going to find companies that are going to build these things without people asking for them right uh, and so people are going to say oh that's that's a great theory matt how do you do it well there, there's actually ways to do this currently right you can either use an excel spreadsheet uh, and fill that in manually mm-hmm. um or there's lots of tools that actually can do this automatically right the, the reporting methodology is not super sophisticated um you just have to have the data that can be fed into it got um, it so it's all it's, a single source of truth to be able to show that. And, and the combination, I think, of marketing automation and CRM has helped enable a lot of this to, to, to start happening. Exactly right. That, those are the two key pieces you have to have to make that happen. Well, this is cool, man. I, I feel like I'm yeah, glimpsing into the future and all these fun things. I got to know, who are you? Where did you come from? How did you become this sage yeah. and this, this soothsayer of marketing? I don't, I don't know if I can call myself a sage. I just say... <laughs> I'm intellectually curious. So someone asked me the other day, well, I get asked this question a lot, right? People interview me and I get asked this a lot. Like, 
The answer of, I can only give to people, and this is where I start, is I have an inherent love for these topics that I've always had. Um, and I think you, you find that with any time that you find anyone that's radically in love with something, right? It's very easy for them to go the extra mile because yeah. they love what they're doing. Um, so for me, like sitting home at night and like reading Marshall McLuhan's books, which quite honestly, no one on this call is going to ever do. Not You should read one. Medium is the message, right? But the rest of them are very, very deep theoretical like ideas and things, right? And, and I'm lo I love these things. So I, I love to read them. I, I'm a massive learner. I just love to do that. And, and the topic just is inherently interesting to me. And then other people make money off of that. So it just kind of allows me to then continue to do this as an actual profession. Um, so that's kind of where the, where the, the drop, like that, that's the, the, the inertia, the initial starting point is I've just always loved it. Um, and then my career path has been very interesting. You know, I started selling coffee machines. First off, I have a degree in agriculture. Most people don't know that. There's, that's what that is. It's a degree in agricultural nice. business behind the University of Georgia. Because um, I made a C in accounting and they weren't going to let me into the business school. <laughs> so I said, how do I then get a business degree and how do I study marketing? So I figured out there was a partnership between the ag school and the business school. So I a little backdoored my way in. Um, like an ag business type degree. Yes. I mean, I studied, and I'm a farmer. I mean, I still, I farm, I don't farm like full time. I mean, I'm a tree farmer, timber farmer, um, oh. but I grew up an agricultural family. My grandfather was an agricultural professor. My grandfather was a farmer. Um, you know, so it's, it's just, it, it fits my family. Did, did you always know you wanted to go into marketing? I mean, do you have any early rec recognition of like, oh yeah, the sort of the selling, how did that even come about? I've always, I've always started my, I, have my, I opened my first business in fourth grade. Oh yeah. Yeah, this is hilarious. So my mother is a career woman, right? So she was an executive, um, and so she traveled a lot. And as any parent knows, if you travel a lot, it's best if you come home with a gift for your child, yes. right? Doesn't matter if you pick it up at the airport. Doesn't matter if it's a tchotchke from a trade show. It, it's, it's a thing, right? Thing. So I had an entire drawer of tchotchkes from trade shows, right? And this was the top drawer of my dresser. My father... Um, this is back when, when men still carry briefcases. My father, like, he's, he got a new briefcase, so he gave me his old briefcase. And now I went to a very progressive public school, right? A very progressive elementary school. And we had, we created an entire community inside the school, a functioning economy, right? There was a bank, part of our classes were learning how to do checkbooks. Um, and the school shut down one day a month and the economy ran. Right? <laughs> so you had a job, um, you either worked at a place. Lots of, anyways, I was like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. So I took all those tchotchkes and dad's old briefcase, stuffed them full. I mean, dad made some other things. And then I took it and I hawked all this stuff at school and I became the richest kid in school, right? It's all fake money, right? But I bought everyone's presents that year for Christmas with this fake money because it was actually in the economy. You actually could buy things with this fake money, right? It was real inside uh -huh. the economy. Um, so, so, you know, starting there and then, you know, I would have my own businesses. I would make my own flyers. Um, it's just, it's just kind of snowball, but I've always, always, always loved it. And maybe that's because both my parents are entrepreneurs and, and so I don't know. Yeah. It sounds like they encouraged you and to go to a school that would encourage you to be creative like that and al allow you to, I don't know, they probably didn't even maybe write in the, you know, the description, Oh, one student could be an entrepreneur, but you're like, Hey, what about this? You know, I want to make my I own business. Yeah, it was just just allowed it. And then you cleaned up shop, man. You, you were able to get all that, that fake currency, the, the school currency and, yeah, and you started hawking stuff. Um, yeah. So, so then you fast forward and then get to like professional, like post-college. 
Um, so post college, I sold copy machines when I first got out of college. Um, wow, that's hardcore, man. That's that's some real sales right dude, there. Set a bunch of records um, that had never been broken at that company. I was extremely proud of that, um, and I just did that for personal. Right? There's like things you do in life just for personal to know you can do it. And that was wild. Yeah. Um, I hated every minute of it, but <laughs> at least I could do it. Um, and then. So then I get about 25, decided I had to do a startup. And so I had my first startup. We did a lead arbitrage system with a telephony monetary system. Those are a lot of fancy words that I probably shouldn't have put it all together. We created <laughs> an aggregate website, right? And it was specifically focused on one niche industry. And this is before aggregation was a thing. So we built a bunch of bots and spiders, aggregate all these consumer ratings and reviews into a central location for this entire industry. Wow. And then to monetize that, we created a telephony system, right? So we spoof every phone number. And when you would call the business, we would split the call, call ahead to the business and let them know that this is a lead. If you want the lead, press one, we'll bill your credit card in real time and then connect you. So you know it's a lead when you're talking to them and you're only paying for the ones you're talking to, right? So that was the model that we created. Wow. Yeah, it was a little too early for its time. And me I was being- say, That sounds like modern, that's fantastic. And to make that happen with the limited tech that they had back then. Yeah, I mean, it was 2007, I guess. Okay, yeah, yeah. Back, but um, anyway, so that's what we did. And then from there, um, I lost a lot of money. Um, <laughs> had to shake that down, right? Like, uh, there's lots of reasons why it failed, but, um, but anyways. So then I, I met this great startup community in Atlanta, and I, I needed a job, and so I saw this company that was hiring, and I asked one of my buddies. I said, hey, man, you know this guy, David? Um, he looks like he's got a sales position open. Can you, can you put in a good word? That was a Saturday. I have an interview on Monday at 11 o'clock, and I was hired by 1 o'clock on Monday. Wow. Um, so that was David. And so he was the founder of Pardot, him and Adam. Um, and I, was, I may have been like one of the only people Adam never interviewed. Um, David just hired me. Because I'd done a lot of like crazy marketing stuff. And there's a lot of other things in my past. Like I was really big with direct mail. I'm still really big with direct mail. I think direct mail is probably one of the most underutilized methodologies. Um, a lot of people use it really horribly, which is why it gets a bad name. But when it works, it works gangbusters. I mean, I was running campaigns for my own personal benefit, um, such as like getting myself new jobs, um, getting myself mentors. And I mean, I was having a success rate of 50%. When I say success, that meant the person on the other end receiving the package would pick up the telephone and call me back. And these were CEOs of major organizations. Wow. You know, so for me to get, you know, 50% success rate to have a major CEO call somebody they'd never met, take action to call them. Right, those are the successes I was getting. So stuff like that, you know, and then me and David just kicked, you know, hit it off. And that's how I started this career and been here ever since. Yeah, Pardot, and then it's acquired and... Yeah, that's been a fun ride. Yeah, what, what a crazy time. If you were to think back uh, and, and give yourself advice, right? You're getting, you know, maybe you just got out of school and you're, it's advice on either the entrepreneurship or the marketing as well. You know, what would you tell yourself? What would you advise yourself? Don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, I, that's, I mean, I have social anxiety. Most people would, this is, we could get into like some deep stuff real quick, but like I have a lot of anxiety and I think I want people that are listening to this to know um, a lot of us in the business world, you know, you see me on stage and you see me talking and you hear me talking. Um, but that's a struggle a lot of times. Like, you know, I have to physically work to, you know, via lots of different methods to, to, to be able to do those things just because I have some handicaps I've got to get over. Um, yeah. And so I think one of those handicaps to help me get over a lot quicker would have, if I had just understood um, that I had that problem and if I'd understood that, you know, I overanalyzed everything and I shouldn't do that, my life would have been so much better in so many ways. Um, so, you know, I realize that now and have been able to change. 
Um, but if I'd known that a lot earlier in life, like I would wish I would have been able to tell myself that, you know? Just yeah. Like, like, it's okay, man. It's going to be good. You know, dude, just go yeah. back and tell you it's all good. Just keep going. Don't worry about that thing. Dude, here's what I tell myself. Anytime I'm having a bad day now, I sit there and say, don't worry, Matt. There's plenty of happy days to come. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of happy days to come for sure. Yeah. And, and it, and it sounds like they have come. It sounds like you've really manufactured and created this life for yourself around, I mean, adventure and, I mean, you get to talk brewing for a second. And oh, yeah, there's what, a lot what of, is the life of Matt? Know, like, people listen and have no clue what the thing. So I also own a brewery, so I help create a brewery. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and then I'm a massive outdoor fan. Like, I don't have my shoulder sling on right now. It, officially, I'm out of it tomorrow. But yeah, I'm a big mountain biker, big surfer, big snowboarder. Um, got one of the travel bands. I'll be traveling around the country next year when my book comes out, you know, visiting a bunch of small towns, close to mountain bikes, places, close to national parks, you know, so I can live that, so I can do all that. You, you know, but not everyone, you know, makes the choice to do that. And there's some pros and cons to it, but I think if it's important to you, then you do it. And, but it speaks a little bit about life too. And, and living it, you get one, so make it one that you really enjoy. Yeah. You know, I had a lot of I've had a lot of great mentors in my life. Um, and, and I think that's one thing that I've learned. Um, and I think that's also something I've learned that we need to give back to other people. Right. Not everyone is fortunate enough to have uh, mentors either in their life or in their community. Sure. I, we can talk about a lot of problems that, you know, a lot of demographics have. And that is there just aren't great models and role models in, in, for some people. I, I was fortunate enough to grow up with a lot of them um, and, and then figure out a way of how to get more of them. Um, and so I, I've continued to do that and, and they've helped me learn a lot of those things. You know, my grandfather was one of the guys and, and this is the man that, that really taught me the, the power of education because he didn't have education. Um, because my grandfather worked up until six weeks before he died. And, and that was, you know, he just passed away like, you know, six months ago. Right. And so he was doing construction up until he was 80 something. Wow. He wanted to, because he had to. And oh, I realized okay. Yeah. And I mean, that was the only way he could survive. Um, we all helped support from the family. Um, but that was how, you know, he did. And I realized I don't want to do that. I don't want to dig ditches and have to do manual labor. When you're 12 carrying bricks in a five gallon bucket up a ladder to rebrick a chimney in the middle of the Southern summer, you learn real fast about what it really takes to break your back, to make a buck every day. Right. And I realized like, Hey, I've got a brain. I've got opportunities to learn. I can take a different path. Um, and, and, you know, but, but from that, I also learned like, you know, he was just a happy guy. He was happy with everything in life. Cool. It's like, if you can be happy in those circumstances, like you can be happy anytime. And so it's like a lot of that stuff, but yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, how, how did you go about creating this and we call it an adventure lifestyle or just, I mean, you get, you, you're giving weight and value to some of these activities and you're going out and doing them. I think sometimes we can sit in our office chair and you know, the life can pass us by. And so somehow you sort of grabbed yeah. onto the. So I was, I was raised in a very outdoor focused family. Got it. Um, so, I mean, there's pictures it, before I could walk, I was on my father's back and we'd be backpacking, caving, doing stuff like that. Um, I spent most all, I was a guide through college. Um, so I guided on the Appalachian trail and, and through a lot of the Southern mountains, um, guided whitewater rafting, climbing, backpacking. Um, so it's just a natural part of what I've always loved. And you just stick to what you love. You know, if, if golf is your thing, if um, whatever your thing is, you know, like find a way to maximize the thing you love most in life. Um, and so I've just really been 
cognizant and, and tried to make sure that my friend groups value the same things that I value, that, that the jobs that I, I take allow for me to do the things that I love and value. Um, and, and then sacrifice. You got to make sacrifices to do things you love. I mean, it's, to, to, to answer the question of how do you get there, it's step by step by step. It's lots and lots of tiny little steps and lots of small little decisions um, that equate to the big things in, in the end. There's not like one thing you ever do. Yeah, I think I hear you on that small little decisions. You don't necessarily have to make some massive movie, movie script change from one to the other, but just every little tiny decision you make. Do I do this? Do I stay in and watch Netflix? Or maybe I go out and do that thing I love, you know, and yeah. every little tiny change. It also goes back to that, like, I'm just inherently attuned to that. Like, I want to do that. Like, I want to live a healthy lifestyle. My dad said when I was a kid, you could put a Snickers bar in one hand and an orange in the other, and I'd always take the orange. I like it was just it was just how I came out. I don't know. It's just that's cool. Just me. Well, I found I learned I, I hate Snickers at altitude. Um, oh, what 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 mountain did you climb? It was Rainier, Mount Rainier. Oh, you did Rainier? Did you summit? Yeah. Oh man, they, I I got pulled off at thirteen three. No, was it weather? Oh, dude, yeah. So I went. It was I was twenty. I think I was probably twenty four. Yeah, I was twenty four when I climbed. So we can okay. do the map. But it was like so the route you took. If you took the normal season route. I did. Yeah, Cowlitz Glacier and all that. Yeah, desperation. Yeah, that was entirely shut off for us. Oh. So we had to hike all the way down and all the way back around the backside and then back up. And then we had to do it through fresh snow. There was no path. Um, so we were breaking fresh trail and we had to do three times the length to get to where. And so by the time we got, we started with 21. There were seven left when we, they turned us around at 13.3. For those that don't know, Mount Rainier is a massive mountain. It's 14.4 total. Yeah, um, and uh, so yeah, so you summoned it. I didn't, man. Well, do you want to go? Do you want to? I'm dying to go again, man. Dude, that was. I don't think people. That was one of the most intense physical things I've ever done in my life. Agreed. It, was, it did. You know, I found myself. You know, every step I was taking, going like, "What a terrible hobby I've chosen. This is, <laughs> this is a lot of work." But then you get to the top, dude, you're like, "Yeah, it's pretty cool." You get you're, back to your the bottom, just, your feet propped up, drinking a Rainier beer, and you're like, "Yeah, I, I could go again." Oh, dude, it was intense. I mean, people, if, if you're listening, like, you hit to a point where they tell you, you need to realize that if you get hurt, a helicopter can't come up here and get you. I mean, like, so it's, it's serious stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd have to think twice before I go again, man. That's, that's, that was a big commitment. Well, you know, it kicked my butt. Like, I, I got there, but when I got to the top, I was probably needed a little more reserve to get back down. But I got back down, but people forget, like, it's a two-way trip, you know? You, you, Ooh, yeah. It's only halfway when you get to the top. But they had this little extra excursion to go to the top of the, the crater rim. They're like, okay, we're at the summit, but do you guys want to go around the crater rim? And I was like, uh, I'm going to sit here and drink my water and eat my pizza. Like, I'm good. But the other, some other people still had energy. And I was like, oh, I'm coming back, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be that guy. You know, that has energy left. So when you said frozen Snickers, that's when that last time I had a frozen Snickers. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, you have to eat them. And the thing is, like, yeah, we, I don't know if we're even off tangent, but yeah. Oh, altitude, a good tangent, man. This is adventure. Adventure tangent. Altitude, everything tastes different. Um, you know, yes. you're like, they're like, I remember my guys were like, don't bring bird food. And what they meant was like, you know, hippie granola bars and stuff, which, which is what I grew up on as a guy, like, you know, like, you know, trail mix and like granola bars. Like that's what I keep kids alive with on the woods. Yeah. It doesn't play when you're at 14,000 feet, right? You need like heavy calorie, salty, mushy, easy. Cause I'm trying to chew through a frozen Snickers bar when you, and then your water bottle is frozen solid. Like, dude, it's just a, it's a crazy thing, man. 
they told me the same thing. They said, don't go get some, you know, dehydrated trail meal or something that you've never tried before. Make sure it's something you really love. They said, you know, Snickers, they even said pizza. And I actually took them up on that. And the night before my parents were out there, my mom cooked a DiGiorno pizza, cut it up into slices, put them in Ziploc bags and tucked it up. Dude, epic. Sitting on like, sitting on Oh my God, that is so brilliant. Eating a pizza slice. It was so good. But then I I tried eating a Snickers and I was like, F that. I I do. I never, and I've never eaten a Snickers since because I, I just didn't want it. It was just this frozen thing. And it wasn't, but I also learned I love Twix. Like I didn't know I had this love relationship with it until I was at altitude. I'm like Snickers. No Twix. Yes. Podcast sponsored by Twix. Sponsored by t- Twix. If you're, you're out there, actually Eminem, uh, Eminem Mars. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Yeah. So cool. yeah, man. Well, that's fantastic. You know, I think we could probably talk about adventure all day. But I will, I will put you in my nurture loop to try to get you to do uh, Rainier with me. Or, or maybe even uh, you know, Kilimanjaro would be, is on my list for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely going to hit Kili one day. Um, How about next year? Want to do it next year? I can't next year. I got, I got a massive book tour next year. I got, <laughs> I got the full globe already. already in Africa? Let's go there. Yeah, and then I got, I got, I got Kenya in two years. So well, nice. I'll be there. So I don't know. Yeah. Nice, nice, man. All right. Well, you know, this is fantastic. Where can people connect with you? Um, where do you want to point people at? You know, LinkedIn, Twitter. What are some of the places they should go? Yeah, I'd say if you want to connect with me, I'm very accessible. Um, so Twitter, uh, it's M Sweezy, um, and they'll you know they'll be in the notes. You can check it. Uh, LinkedIn. I, I keep my LinkedIn profile. Uh, you have to have my email address um, just because I get a lot of requests, just keeps it down. Um, so Twitter's the best. Um, and then, Those are so annoying though, right? You get the request, you cringe because you know, in a, like five minutes after accepting, you're going to get one of those like spam emails like, da. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. So, and then the, if you want to like catch up, the podcast is, I think is a great thing you should listen to. Um, Electronic Propaganda Society on any podcast format, it's everywhere. Um, and that's just a really fun listen. Um, and then I've got that book coming out next year, which is being published by Harvard Business. Um, so it's essentially, it, it's called the Context Marketing Revolution, which is essentially theory based on what we talked about at the beginning of a shifting media environment, what changes, what needs to change, um, and then how do we succeed in the infinite era? Um, so that's kind of the whole breakdown. So yeah, so those are the places to check me out. And we'll put a link on the show notes for that. And I think it's a fantastic, you can actually pre-order it too, it looks like. Yeah, and I, please pre-order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got, we got to show up in force and show the HBR what's up. Yeah, yeah. They don't please. know who they're dealing with here. Come on, people, let's do this. Well, thanks, man. I mean, this has been fantastic. Uh, I'm sure we'll have to have you on later on and come back and we'll just talk adventure the whole time maybe and a little bit of marketing. But uh, this has been so fun. Awesome. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's a good conversation. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, And for everyone out there listening, uh, if you've learned something, share this with someone else. Be the thought leader by sharing content that you've heard. I know you've learned something because I literally have two pages of notes over (laughs) here. So get this in front of somebody else, whether it's, you know, the weighted pipeline or some of these other things we've learned about today. You know, share this, get this out there, write a blog post about what you learned. You know, just get this content out there. Um, and, and Matt, again, thank you so much for coming on here. Yeah, man. Awesome. For everyone else out there, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll catch you all next time.